0: Hey guys, it's Casey here to pop on and let you know that I got an amazing review on one of my most favorite products. It's so underrated, but I think everyone in here needs to know it. Mock exams are scary. Sometimes sitting down to take one alone is hard. So why don't you take it with Leah and I? We have come out with a product. It is the ultimate question dissection bundle. It is 10 hours, 250 questions that we go through with you that you can watch on your own time and pause it and go back and start over. And it's just so exciting. And this review came in on it, which I love. It said, just a note to anyone who is considering this bundle, do it. This saved my ass and my test yesterday. I would never have gotten through those questions and teased out the tricky wording if it weren't for this bundle and the behavior bitches. For info's sake, I also did the one month cram, the 185 plus one mock, The WTF diagnostic mock and a trending mock also lived on the app quizzing myself. I also did a mock from another service. All were helpful, but nothing compares to Snabba, I-M-O, in my honest opinion. And this is Cody. Thank you for this review on the Ultimate Question Dissection Bundle. Head over and get it now. It is only $99 for 10 hours of content www.studynotesaba.com. Love you. Mean it. See you in class. Study
1: notes ABA. ABA in a little x rated away.
0: It's behavior, bitches.
1: Hey guys, it's Liat and Casey, and we are here with episode 117. I'm not even going to give Casey the opportunity to try rhyme today because she could barely rhyme when we were on episode three, which it rhymes with a lot. So, 117, I'm just pre warning you that our rhymes are getting much shittier as time goes on. 117, a lot of serial killers go unseen, and some might say they're mean. They probably do a job that's clean. Oh, unless they get caught. Perfect. Yeah. And just, just according to my book that I've been reading here, which we'll tell you about in a second, they do not always do such a good job cleaning up. They're not that smart. But anyways, we'll get into this soon. But before we get started with today's episode, I think it's time for some positive reinforcement for ourselves so we keep coming to you every other week. And by the way, I've been noticing you guys slacking on the podcast reviews, and that makes me think, should we keep doing this show? And if you want us to keep going, you better leave us some reviews because we eat that shit up. Go to that Apple podcast app and leave a review, but you could listen to us anywhere, but leave us and by a review. I mean, a five-star review only. Duh. All
0: right. Today is coming in from Claire 23 ABA. She says it's relatable, funny content. Thank you for creating such a relatable and funny podcast. Each episode, I learn new things and I apply them to the science of ABA. I started listening when I was still working on my hours and passed the test a few months ago. Congratulations. I am still trying to figure out what to do with my certification, but listening to the podcast gives me lots of ideas of the various areas ABA is incorporated into. I especially like that the explanations are done and phrases are explained in simple to understand terms while still staying scientific. Well, Claire, I hope that you figured out what you want to do because this was left in December of 2021. Um, let us know. Send us an email at behaviorbitches at studynotesaba.com and let us know what you're doing with your certification. We're so excited to hear. And thank you for leaving the review. All right, Liat. This is definitely going to be, as you know, over time of 116 episodes. There are Casey heavy episodes and there are Liat heavy episodes and that just means what we're doing. Oh, honey, I don't even about. need
1: you for this episode. I could
0: literally... Peace out. No, just kidding. I I'm, I love this guest. But definitely, you guys know by now, I am into like the ABA people and all that shit. Liat is definitely into true crime and serial killer stuff. And I know a lot of our listeners are. So Liat found this guest. Um, I'm going to do a little introduction and then we'll bring her on because she's a big effing deal, first of all. So... Today, we have Dr. Joni Johnston, and she is a forensic psychologist, private investigator, and crime writer. She has worked in medium-maximum security prisons, um, the Board of Parole, the Superior Court of San Diego, and a workplace investigator of misconduct allegations, including harassment, discrimination, and violence. She also evaluates mentally disordered offenders up for parole and provides expert testimony in criminal and civil litigation, where a forensic psychologist can help shed light on pertinent issues. That sounds very stressful. Joni, welcome to the show.
2: Thank you. Thank you. I am so excited about being here.
0: I know Liat has been doing her research. Yeah, guys,
2: by the way, I am
1: not usually the researcher for the show. I kind of just show up and- you know, make a joke here or there, but Casey's usually the one doing all the research. But when we met this guest, AKA Joni, well, I, I reached out and I was like, dude, if we could get this person on, like I could live my dream of like being a dateline interviewer. You know, I love anything true crime. And I know a lot of people in the field of behavior or uh, psychology. psychology, jinx, thanks, <laughs> owe me a Coke, um, punch buggy, no take <laughs> <laughs> let's keep this going, no, uh, so, <laughs> sorry, okay, refocus, I got the giggles, uh, uh, a lot of people in our, you know, even in our classes are always like, we, we did some classes originally that were, you know, looking at behaviors of Ted Bundy or Delmer. And those were some of our most popular classes we ever offered. Anyways, I saw Joni online and I said, I'm reaching out to her. This How is did a- you find her? where did you find her? LinkedIn? I think I like went into like a LinkedIn phase for, you know, like that one month I was like, I'm so into LinkedIn. Oh my God, I- you stressed me out. You're like, we need
0: to do a LinkedIn bio and this. and." This. I'm like, oh my God, there's so many. You know, messages. I get
1: random interest in things, you know, but I reached out and I got a reply. So that's a life lesson for anyone. If you don't ask, the answer's always no. Anyways, Joni said yes. We love Joni. And Joni is going to answer all the questions. Well, probably not all, because I have a lot. Um, but as many as we could get to in this time. And also, we'll, and we'll also put in the show notes later that Joni wrote a book that I have sitting right in front of me. It's called Serial Killers 101 Questions True Crime Fans Ask. So all those questions that you're thinking in your head when you're watching these datelines or 2020 or 48 hours, they're in here. So you better go get the book. It'll be in the show notes and it's amazing and easy to read. Hi, Joni. I'm so excited you're here and I have so many questions to ask you.
2: Well, I am ready to answer as many of them as I possibly can.
1: For me, if I was
0: listening right now, I might be asking myself what is a forensic psychologist. So I mean, a lot of our listeners know what psychologists do. Now, what is a forensic psychologist? And how the hell did you get into this crazy
2: job? A forensic psychologist basically is a psychologist who works pretty much anywhere where law and psychology overlap. So there's a legal question, but there's some mental issue at hand. And that could be a bunch of different things. It could be everything from assessing violence risk. If somebody's about to be released, it could be somebody who's committed a crime. And the question is, was this person legally insane at the time that they committed the crime? Um, It really it could be anything also from something we don't normally think about somebody who was in a car accident and is saying that I have post-traumatic stress disorder as a result of this car accident. So it's really a pretty broad category. Um, And it's super, super fun um, and interesting to me at least. But yeah, it really is anywhere, as I mentioned, anywhere that there is a legal issue at hand and a psychologist is needed to offer an opinion about something that has to do with mental health, mental state, psychology.
0: Can you tell me about what happened when you were 14?
2: I most certainly can't. Well, at least <laughs> not everything that happened. No, no, no. I think you thing. know I'm <laughs> going with <over> <laughs> yeah, yeah. There are some boundaries. Yes, no, yeah. I'm, I'm, yeah. But when I was 14, I was on, I should say, trapped in a car with my family for two weeks, as I think it feels like to a lot of 14 year olds who were on a family vacation. And my mom had this thing about just driving like 500 miles a day to get to the next location. She was very task oriented. So we were all in the car for hours at the end. I've always loved to read. And I picked up Helter Skelter, which was a book about Charles Manson and his family. And it was just life-changing in some respects for me. And that I read this book and I just could not get my head around it. Like, why would this happen? Why would people who um, some of his followers seem to have a pretty normal background First of all, the whole issue about this, quote, family and this kind of cult and which was all very new to me. And then, of course, these horrible murders and they're murdering people that don't even know. And so I just got so interested in trying to understand that mindset and the psychology behind that. And I didn't know at the time or at least making the connection that my mom really was um, a private investigator at heart. I mean, she read she watched every detective, crime show, you name it. So I guess there was that part of it as well, maybe genetic component that I was not aware of. And so all that really kind of came together for me and um, shaped my eventual career path.
1: So you're 14 years old reading, how do you say it again? Helter Skelter. How do you say it?
2: I've Helter heard of it. Skelter. Yeah. Vincent Bigliosi was the author. It was, you know, many, many years ago. So it probably isn't as well known today.
1: No, I've heard of it. I feel like people know of it. I just wanted to make sure I said it right. But 14 years old, you're not like creeped out by this.
2: No, and, you know, there's a whole question of, wow, should any 14-year-old be reading this book, which I'm not going to go into. Um, my parents had a lot of trust, I think, in my judgment, so they were not too worried about it. But no, it was interesting. It, you know, when you're reading a book, it is disturbing. There's no question about that. But there is also a lot of times a distance there in terms of this is something that happened in another state to other people. And I think maybe, too, just being young, it almost seemed, I think, like... A horror story, you know, or a scary story in a way, even though it was real, it, you know, I, I wasn't worried right. about, you know, I didn't wake up at night thinking that Charles Manson was going to break into my house or anything like that. Um, so it was alarming and disturbing, but not scary.
1: That makes sense. I was going
0: to ask. So you go into like maximum or whatever security prison. Medium and- or maximum. Thank you. And- <laughs> <laughs> for, for ones on episode 117 I'm so glad you're showing up. just kidding <laughs> um, you're not scared to go in and and kind of be the person who are they like excited to see you or are they not excited to see you? what is that like?
2: Well, you know every situation is different but I think from a practical standpoint when you look at who is most likely to be violent, um, really mental health professionals are seen as, People who can get individuals' stuff, you know, they can help them get, um, you know, perks or privileges or help or whatever. And so when you look at the hierarchy of who is most likely to be hurt in prison, it certainly would not be mental health professionals worst. So it would be number one would be other inmates. Mm-hmm. right that's a scary situation because you have fighting you have all these politics and that kind of thing then you probably have custody officers would be next on the list of who is most likely to be hurt because just of the role that custody officers are in they're in there for enforcement and security and those kinds of things uh, not that there aren't scary situations as mental health professionals because of course you can get caught in the middle of certain things and when somebody's in, you know, having a psychotic break, that can be scary in terms of what they're thinking and what they're doing. But there's a lot of security, obviously, as you can imagine. And like I said, I think most, uh, most inmates do st- think of mental health professionals as helpers, as opposed to kind of enemies, if you will.
1: Well, also you're making some big decisions, right? Like, so someone, and also I don't think their decisions
0: making- though, Joni called them, uh,
1: recommendations. Recommendation. Okay. Yes. So you were listening. Okay. Yes. recommendations. <laughs> so let's say someone, someone got in there, right? Someone has, well, what I'm also seeing in your book here it's saying that a lot of, you know, people try showing that they do have some kind of mental health issue. Mm-hmm.
2: Uh,
1: I don't know necessarily to excuse the behavior, but definitely to lessen the punishment. Mm-hmm. And I saw also here something about like the death sentence. If Like a lot of people try showing that they have a low IQ or whatever it is. So you're getting these people in here who are all trying to prove themselves as having some mental health issue, maybe not all. Mm -hmm. And you have to be the one to go in and really see past the bullshit of what is real and what is an act to try, you know, better serve them.
2: Yes. So depending upon what the question is, um, there's a lot of different things I might be doing, a lot of questions I might be, you know, trying to answer in the context. And so one of the things to think about is when you're a forensic psychologist, unlike when you're doing a therapy session, when you're really taking what that person says at face value, you know, if I'm doing a therapy session and somebody is telling me they're depressed, I'm not going to be kind of going, are they really depressed? You know, what is the evidence that they're depressed? Has their siblings said they're depressed or their wife or their husband, because it's a therapeutic situation. And so I'm concerned about their perspective and what they're doing in a forensic situation. I am always needing to look at multiple sources of information, first of all. So it's not just what the person is telling me because I understand you're right. Everybody has kind of different interests, different agendas um, and that kind of thing. And so, you know, there's always a need to kind of look at a bunch of different things to figure out if person is telling the truth, if they're not telling the truth, how do you evaluate that? So that's, I think, a really important thing to be thinking, you know, to, to realize that, when you're talking about, um, you know, mental health in a, you know, in a prison, for example, um, we have to always look at multiple different sources and not just kind of take what somebody says at face value.
1: Totally. That's, I mean, and I'm assuming a lot of these people are master manipulators as well. And so I just feel like that would be so much pressure. I, you said I know you said it's made up of a team of people deciding, you know, what will happen with this individual? But I feel like that would be so much pressure.
2: It is pressure because there are very serious questions that are being asked. Sometimes it's a matter of freedom. You know, if somebody going to be um, confined for a long period of time, or going to be committed somewhere? Are they going to be out on parole or able to get on parole? All those things are really serious questions, and so is something I have to really, you know, not just me, but anybody in this in this field. Really does have to take it very seriously and understand that the consequences can be really extreme in some in some respects. And then the other part of it, I think, is you know when you're talking about um, some some terms like legal terms, um, you know, it, it, somebody who's quote crazy, which I hate that word, but saying somebody is crazy is really different than saying somebody is legally insane. So it's a lot narrower to say that this person is legally insane. So it, it is complicated. It's it's it is a lot of responsibility, but we have some legal guidelines and we have some um, psychological guidelines to try to help sort through that.
1: Hey guys, it's Liat. Just kidding. Just kidding. This is to tell you guys something big, something huge, something that has never been done before on our site. So as you know, we're all about taking the big, bad BCBA exam and We're not mentalistic per se, but we do believe in some good juju.
0: Yes, I love some good juju. And let me tell you, one of my favorite articles of clothing just so happens to be our SNABA sorority tie-dye sweatshirt. I wear that thing all the time. And if you are studying and going to take your test, you need to be rocking that shit too so you can pass your exam for a limited time only until supplies run out. They are $15.
1: Yeah, no, it's a big deal. Go get them. Look, we're ethical BCBA, so we can't promise you that there's gonna be, you know, causation that you wear the sweatshirt you're gonna pass. But hey, this is a hard test. So whatever might help along the way, get the sweatshirt. And who doesn't love any comfy loungewear to wear around? $15, go get it on our site now. Again, only while supplies last. And head over to www.studynotesaba.com
0: to get your sweater and then make sure to tag us on Instagram at StudynotesABA,
1: wearing your Snava sweatshirt. Love ya, mean it. Taking this back a little bit, these are also selfish questions that I want to know. What is the main age of the population that you see within these prisons?
2: I mean, I would say 18 to 30. You know, when you look at who commits violent crimes in particular, it's young people. You know, it's people who are, you know, the the testosterone is flowing, right? Um, That's definitely true. So, I I think between the ages of 18, when you have younger, but younger, um, young adults, but I think, you know, when you're talking about juveniles, it's kind of a whole different population. Even you're talking about 15 year olds, 16 year olds, 17 year olds, you're looking at who's most likely to commit violent offenses. It really is what 18 to 30. And at a certain point, 50 and older, we kind of start aging out. A lot of people who even were violent offenders, it's like they get tired, you know, (laughs) just isn't it isn't as appealing. They don't have the the testosterone, the energy or whatever. So it's, it's, it's young people who commit the most violent offenses.
0: Do you do work with juveniles?
2: I do some work with juveniles, but the ones that I tend to work with and I'm to do mainly evaluations are um, juveniles who've committed Mm -hmm. very serious crimes and are being considered to be tried as adults.
0: And is that a determination that you make if they are
2: being tried as an adult or not? No, that is a, a decision oftentimes by the prosecutor. Gotcha. And it's obviously going to depend upon how serious mm-hmm. uh, the crime is. But, you know, and, and obviously there are some, there are some laws that, that vary state to state. You know, some laws will say if the child is 15 or under, no matter what the crime They're going to be held in the juvenile justice system. And then other states, you can be, you know, depending upon the crime and the circumstances at 16, you can be classified as an adult. Wow.
0: I have a question. So we talk a lot about motivating operations in our field about what's the MO, what's the reason behind it? You know, what do you think some of the biggest motivating operations are for serial killers?
2: I mean, I think it's like a, it's like a pie isn't it? I mean, it really is, I think, or a perfect storm. I've heard people say um, there's the genetic component, um, you know, there's the childhood uh, trauma, there's head injury, right? I mean, you know, when you talk about some of the things that all come into play to kind of talk about what this person, what their psychological, psychology is like, um, it really does seem like it's, it's um, a recipe almost, like I said, I mean, it's obviously a very loose, you know, a, a loose recipe, but when we talk about what causes people to act out, I really think it is a lot of times this combination this combination. A lot of times it's genetic components that people have, whether that's a um, disposition that's kind of difficult or it's a genetic predisposition. And then you have, you know, all the other stuff that goes into it. Again, we talked about head injury. We talk about childhood trauma, you know, um, physical, sexual abuse. I mean, And, 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 I mean, right. there's just so many things that kind of go into it. And probably for some people, there's more genetic loading, you know, more people. And then there are other people who probably have just had such a terrible childhood, basically, that just about anything um, that, you know, that almost anybody would, would act out or have some kind of difficulty because of that childhood trauma.
1: So would you say the nature versus nurture is pretty equal? As to what you I, see. Think it,
2: I think, like I said, I think it depends. I mean, we've, we, there's certainly when you talk about serial killers, the vast majority of, the, majority of them have a significant amount of childhood trauma, like 65 or 70% have a history of some kind of physical or abuse or severe neglect, but then that's 30% that don't. So then you kind of go, well, how do we explain that? How do we explain these individuals? So, I think, you know, that's where it gets kind of complicated, where we know that certain things are overrepresented among serial killers, but you can find thousands of people who've had the same life experience, right? Who've had the same childhood trauma or maybe the same genetic predisposition or whatever. It just kind of, yeah, it's just, it's so complicated, I think.
1: So, you know, I guess. When when I first asked the question, I was thinking, oh, it's probably going to be an answer, like Dateline. And then I realized, because, you know, it's almost like Lester Holt on Dateline. Like, it's like, there was Jamie, married to John in love for five years, then comes Alexa, love triangle, right? And then I was thinking, as I asked you that, I was like, oh, well, there's a difference between someone who's murdered someone and a serial killer, right? Yes, What I'm trying to say is, so in behavior analysis, we kind of break everything down to four functions, um, Mm -hmm. attention, escape, some sensory component, like you like the way it feels Mm
2: -hmm.
1: or access to some tangible. So whatever it is. And when I read about these different serial killers in your book, I do see that, you know, some of them, I think get a rush from it. So it might be that automatic or that sensory component, Mm -hmm. And then there's also some who seem to almost like the attention that they get in the media.
2: Well, it's, it's great. It's really great because I think we're, we're talking about some of the same things using different language. You mm-hmm. know, when you're talking about some of the ABA stuff, I think it for me, it's more talking about motives or those are drives or whatever. So it's interesting to talk about that and, and using it in a different kind of way.
1: Well, I'm wondering because I'm that's what I was thinking. I was like, okay, I'm asking about this and it totally makes sense. Like we're, we're kind of looking at like a deeper um past of what's happened, right? Like, okay, there's been some trauma, whatever it is. But then I'm like wondering, okay, but when it comes to like one of the actual instances of behavior in that moment. Okay. Like I'm thinking, in that moment, what's the function? Like. Of these four, like immediate functions that they're getting, or this reinforcement they're getting from committing these crimes, not looking back at their past, do you see a more common theme than others? Like it's the sensory component, it's for attention, it's for to escape something. Do you do you see any of this?
2: Yeah, and I mean, I think that kind of translates for me into kind of what are the motives. Whether it's and it's more broader, I guess, but more like in terms of you know, is this a financial gain? You know, yes. is this somebody who's doing it for money? Is this somebody who's doing it for sexual pleasure or sexual gratification or for power and control, um, you know, or a mission oriented serial killer who thinks that the world needs to be rid of this certain group or or whatever. So that's kind of how it, it translates for me is more, I guess, about the motive versus the immediate, um, the, the immediate mo- yeah. function or the immediate, yeah. So like sexually, sexually sexually motivated serial killers, a lot of times will report this fantasy life or this, you know, this, these fantasies that have occurred over a number of, you know, for years, oftentimes, and then it becomes, okay, what, which is the one question we have is what um, tips that person over from these fantasies to actually acting on those fantasies. Um, And that's kind of where we're trying to, and that's, I know I'm kind of telling you kind of a different no, this is
1: exactly what I was trying to get at, but I couldn't ask it. So I appreciate it. This is, this is exactly where I was trying to go, but I didn't know how to, because I think a lot of us, we speak the same language, but in different words. That's, yeah. <laughs> so that's exactly where I was trying to go. So what is like, is that what you're trying to figure out? Like, what was the thing that tipped up?
2: And I think that's a big question that we have still, you know, what is it that tips somebody over from all these fantasies that they've been having for a long period of time? Um I'm trying to think now I'm getting confused. Um, It it is so, um, yeah, I I love talking to you about this because like I said, the ABA part of it for me is like a foreign language in a way. Um, But But it's exactly
1: what you're saying. Like when you said all those other things, like, is it for something you're like, oh, is it for money, financial benefit? That'd be a tangible, that's what we call tangible. Like they're gaining something from it. Like they're gaining access to money now, right? Is it? Is it the sensory component? Like they literally love what it sounds like when you cut someone's head off. I don't know, you know, all these interesting things that are, we just have different language. And I think yes. for any of our students mm-hmm. listening, the idea is that, you know, people be like ABA is so new or, you know, we also do what we call a lot of BCBA holes, board certified behavior analyst assholes because they're like, this is the only way. And just realizing that, just because we have different uh, like verbiage and words for these different things, we're talking about the same things Mm -hmm. just with different words. Mm
2: -hmm. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. And I think when we're talking about motives, we are talking about, you know, really a handful of them. We are talking about the sexually motivated. I think probably the most common that we see is a sexually motivated. Then we have the thrill kind of the thrill killers, um, that are kind of interested in that. Then we have the whole issue of you know finance. You know for money, we have the that's a huge motivation. Wait, um, what what money do serial killers get? Oh, they kill someone for the money. For money, exactly, exactly. They oftentimes you know will kill um, individuals' life insurance policies, for example. Um, you know they'll kill they'll kill a family member um, to get uh, money. You have the kind of power and control. Just you know having that. Um, you know, that power over somebody else, you know, people who will literally, you know, strangle somebody and watch them as they're dying. I mean, that's a pretty severe kind of power control. And then we have, like I said, some missions and trying to think, what's that going to say? Um,
1: Oh, like the, um, yeah. Yeah. Like we need to rid the world of these
2: specific people. Yes. Yes. Um, I'm trying to think how we call that like, um, John Paul Franklin. There's you know somebody who just has this belief that there was a Herman Mullins who had this bizarre belief that um, if he didn't sacrifice people, then there was going to be these huge earthquakes. Um, that was one of the most bizarre motives. But he literally thought of himself as kind of saving the world by you know having all these you know um, essentially human sacrifices. Um, But very uncommon. Then we have like the John Paul Franklin, which is kind of more the we're getting rid of, um, you know, people who people who like interracial marriage. There's something we have to get rid of these people or we're trying to get rid of homeless people right. Mm-hmm. We're you know, we're, we're just, or, or, or like sex prostitute yes. or sex workers. Uh, yeah. I've exactly.
0: I've seen that a lot. Yeah,
2: exactly. So the, yeah, there really aren't that or many like the different ones. Like I'm yeah. saving
0: the, uh, exactly.
2: I'm saving the world by getting rid of these people who are draining society or they're immoral or, you know, or that kind of thing. And then we you know the ones that we think about the most, of course, are the sexually motivated Ted Bundy's Jeffrey Dahmer, you know, John Wayne Gacy. I mean, the ones that for whatever Richard Ramirez, I mean, the ones that we know about, um, you know, that tend to be, I hate to use this word, but it's kind of like sexy in terms of we're interested, they're so complicated or whatever, tend to be the sexually motivated serial killers.
1: So wait, is this, this is, this is kind of off topic, but nothing's off topic in my head because they're all connecting. I remember seeing one of my prison shows I watched, I don't know, this was probably when I was 14 too. Something about is, does this still happen? The chemical castration?
2: I mean, that can be a voluntary thing, um, you know, for sexually violent offenders who are wanting to be released. Sometimes that is part of the condition to be released. It's not very common. Um, and it's, it really is when you have somebody who, um, oftentimes has multiple offenses, um, you know, over a significant period of time. And they're just, you know, they are considered to be an and sexually violent predator varies from state to state. Some states don't even have that term, but it has very specific legal implications. In other words, you're not just saying, oh, he's a sexually violent predator because he has these sexual deviancies. You have to meet these very specific criteria to be considered a sexually violent predator, like in California. Um, and so in, in, in severe cases, sometimes you will have somebody again, who, um, you know, agrees to submit to chemical castration because they're, um, you know, they've had so, they've had so many offenses in this area. And so that a sexually violent predator is there's a, there's a pretty, pretty narrow definition of that. And it's somebody that's not very common, but it really is oftentimes when there's, there's just not much information about whether they can you know, can
1: control, can deal with that. Yeah. But That's let's pretty, say chemical castration
2: is very un, unusual. I right? like, I was like, did I dream up this term or it's a real thing? No, it is. A, it is a real thing. I mean, it's pretty much what it sounds chemical. But castration. you're using chemicals to like cut their genitals off or no, to kill not, their genitals. Not when you're talking about chemical it's um, it's taking medication or drugs that lower your libido So it's kind of like you're not really, you know, cutting anything off. You're using chemicals to lower the libido, lower the sex drive or whatever. So it's an alternative to physical castration. That's so, yes, okay. it is a real thing, but it's not a very common thing for lots of reasons. Not, not many people sign up for it, which we all understand that. Um, and number two, like I said, it really is considered in pretty extreme situations when somebody just feels like they can't control their, um, you know, their sexual purifying. Yeah, yeah, urges. Mm-hmm.
1: All right. Now, for this next part, I'm getting, I have picked out some questions in your book. Everyone, this book, that is the 101 questions every true crime fan wants to ask. And obviously, I can't formulate my own questions today because I'm just too excited. So I'm (laughs) going to choose some from this book that I think other people uh, would find interesting. And again, there's 101 questions. So if you guys want to see, get the book to see the rest. But okay, question. My first one I had is what are the different types of male serial killers and are they always
2: male? Well, the, first, the second question is, is really easy to answer, and that is no, although they are, of course, um, overrepresented among serial killers as they are among um, serial killers in general. So about 10%, 7% to 10% of serial killers today are female. Kind of an interesting little tidbit is that in 1900, about 35% of serial killers were women. So I think that's pretty interesting because we don't know exactly why that is, but one very, I think, very good hypothesis is that you think about the limited opportunities um, for women economically um, in the 1900s. I'm not saying that serial killing was a, a profession by any means, but what I'm saying is that when you look at motives of um, female serial killers, they're much more likely to be money to gain to gain money in some respects. And so there is some, I think very good, there's a very good argument to be made that as women became more economically free and had more opportunities, the incidence of serial killers among women went down because that was a primary motive. So there was a, you know, a small minority of women, you know, back in the 1900s who I guess probably felt trapped economically and legally and all kinds of things and eventually resorted to murdering oftentimes multiple spouses or children for life insurance, or to gain some kind of economic freedom. So that's kind of an interesting, you know, little aside there. That, that um, is
1: really interesting to look at these different variables that may
2: affect. Mm-hmm. Yeah, isn't it, it really is fascinating when you think about the times and how they've affected serial killers, as well as uh, looking across different countries and looking at the not only the prevalence of serial killers across countries, but kind of some of the ways that they operate you know, would not be as likely here. I'm that's, I'm kind of getting off on, on a off topic here a little bit, but that really is interesting. And we kind of, we kind of covered, I think a lot of the, yeah, we did. That's killers. what I realized
1: after I, cause I realized when I asked that question, I was like, wait, these are all the exact things that we had just spoken about. I just had used it different when you said the different types and, and that falls into the anger, criminal enterprise, financial gain, ideology, power, thrill, psychosis,
2: sex, so those are exactly what we had just spoken about. So I guess I'm, the only thing I would add to that is there's more general category, which is um, probably the first way of categorizing serial killers in general was kind of this organized versus disorganized categories. Um, that was kind of an early way of kind of going, OK, well, wow, some serial killers seem to be really. On the ball in terms of they're planning their crimes, they're bringing a weapon to the scene, they're perhaps stalking their 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 victims. Maybe they're choosing a victim for a specific way. They're then cleaning up the crime scene, you know, getting rid of forensic evidence. In other words, they're pretty organized. Um, they tend to be more likely to kind of charm their victims when they meet them. And then you have this other kind of kind of category of serial killers who tend to be disorganized. They're more likely to pick crime victims of opportunity. So somebody is walking alone and they're likely to just kind of have a blitz approach where they just jump on them and use violence and subdue them in that way. Um, They may not bring a weapon to the scene, use their hands, pick up a rock, you know, those kind of things. Um, They may be very disorganized, leave the victim laying out in the open. um, Not clean up anything. So that was initially this thought that you have these, you know, these organized killers and you have these serial killers and you have these um, disorganized serial killers. And there was an even further thought that, wow, maybe these crime scenes are reflective of that person's life in general. So if you have an organized serial killer, um, then you're more likely to have, uh, you know, an organized person. In other words, somebody who's maybe socially skilled, who is smart, who, you know, maybe, maybe professional, maybe educated in some ways. So, you know, they're not just organized in their crime scene, they're organized in their life. Then of course, these disorganized serial killers are more likely to be maybe have low intellectual abilities, to be loners, not very socially skilled, um, you know kind of operating on the fringes in terms of economics. Well, it would be very nice in a way if we could just kind of go, yes, you either fall into category A or category B. And over time, what we've realized is, well, it's not quite that simple because most serial killers are organized to some degree, right? Because they're able to kill multiple people. You have to have some degree of sophistication to be able to do that. And even organized serial killers, you find serial killers who may, for example, uh, pick a victim based on certain characteristics, stalk that person, bring a weapon, and then just throw the body and not cover anything up. And so you have this kind of mixed category they added. Well, if it's a mixed category, what does that mean? It means nothing, right? It just like saying, well, everybody is one, one, or the other, and sometimes you're both. So that was the earliest kind of attempt to categorize serial killers. And then we did, as you pointed out, then we kind of did start looking at uh, defining it more by motives, you know, whether it's this kind of anger, retaliatory, or the criminal enterprise, or the money, or the sex, or the thrill, and those kinds of things.
1: AKA what we call the function. Yes. ABA people. ABA
2: people, the function, forensic psychologist, yeah, the motivation, Motive. or yeah, whatever.
0: How many people do you have to kill in order to become a serial killer? What is that? Is there a certain number? Or Four to one? five, actually. E-
2: <laughs> e- <laughs> you're <laughs> you're awesome. I never uh, have a reading <laughs> So. So, yeah, well, that's funny because that's changed over time. And in 1998, the FBI said, or there was a law that was passed that said you have to have three or more uh, victims um, with this cooling off period in between. And that is so, you know, that was like, okay. If we're talking about a serial killer, then, you know, we need to have a significant number of victims. Uh, We need to somehow differentiate them between mass murderers, right, who go in and do uh, kind of a big murder at once. Exactly. But here was the problem with this definition is the FBI, um, you know, try to make themselves available and accessible to state and local agencies who need them and, you know, coming in as part of a series was something they would do, but they felt like that that was limiting them to have this victim count at three. So in 2005, they had this big symposium and they decided, okay, let's think about this for a minute because most people who murder somebody only murder one person. The vast majority of people who murder only murder once. So if somebody is murdering two people, in two separate occasions, they are really standing out as murderers, right? And so they changed and narrowed the definition to two in order f- to allow them basically to come into a case earlier and hopefully prevent the third victim and the fourth victim and the fifth victim, et cetera. So as of 2005, technically it is two Victims um, on two separate occasions. Although you can still read people um, in research, for example, will use this three still as the hallmark. It makes but so much sense what two. you just
0: said. Like, why would you wait for the third?
2: <laughs> like exactly, if yeah. Already exactly. done it
0: once, and then they do it again. Like, okay, then let's classify them and move on.
2: <laughs> yeah, they're on. yeah, they're already in a class of their yeah, own. I'm like they're you're a <laughs> you're a horrible
0: right. human beings. So. <laughs>
1: You know what? There's so many questions in this book that I wanna that I would like to read, but I'm actually okay. I have two questions for you. Okay. One, when these people are talking to you about the crimes they've committed, is it a common theme to see a lack of empathy when you're, you know, speaking to a lot of these perpetrators? Or do they sometimes come in acting like they're very upset about it?
2: Very rarely do I see true empathy? Um, and I think that's just a function perhaps of how there's this compartmentalization that oftentimes goes on, you know, where it's like, here's, you know, so you have a couple of different, um, when you look at serial killers, you have some serial killers who um, have families they have children and they seem to almost have these double lives where they're functioning relatively normally in society. And yet they have this kind of other, almost like hidden life um, where they're, I think in their minds, it's like, these aren't real people that are my victims. So here's my family, here are my kids. And then here are this other group over here that I feel differently about, or I don't feel anything toward. And so there's this kind of dehumanization that goes on And so I think that um, there's very rarely any empathy for those victims because they found a way in their minds to make this person almost not a person um, to, you know, to make it something else that, you know, an object, um, a less than person or whatever. So, yeah, I mean, I'm trying to think of and let me also just make clear that you know I did spend 2 years in a maximum security prison and that's that's not the norm for most inmates that i see i mean there's a huge gamut of people in, in prison, just like there is walking around. You know, we know people in our lives who are very compassionate, very empathetic, and we know others that maybe seem to be missing a little bit of a sensitivity gene or empathy genes. And I mean, there are people in, in, in prison, even ones who've committed violent crimes, who have the capacity for empathy and they have different stories of where they got to where they are. But when you're talking about serial killers, I think it is the exception rather than the rule Um, that they have empathy for their victims at all.
1: Wow. Okay. So, and what I would, I also love to hear about when you talk about these things, I could tell that you really love what you do.
2: I do. (laughs) I really feel like I, I have to say this. I feel like I feel so lucky to be able to do what I do. And I feel so lucky that I've had the chance to work with victims and be a victim advocate and work with families and see, you know, understand as much as possible without being a a crime victim. So let me say that I'm not saying I understand exactly what it's like, but to see the impact and the ripple effect of violent crime and and also to be able to work with and evaluate offenders and try to understand, um, you know, first of all, why, most people who have traumatic childhoods don't become perpetrators and try to understand why people who have traumatic backgrounds and other things in their lives do become perpetrators and try to figure that out. So I feel lucky that I love what I do. And also that I've able to to work with, with, you know, i taught a class recently and I was telling, my class, um, there were my doctoral students, you know, if you're a huge crime victim advocate, I want you to spend some time working with offenders. And if you are somebody who, you know, is very criminal justice reform and you know, let's give everybody a second chance. And, you know, that I want you to spend some time working with the victims, you know, because it's, it's seeing the big picture. I think that's so helpful.
1: Absolutely. That's In so size. true. Cause you, you kind of like lean to the one side then all the time, but just to make sure you don't get that bias. Yes. Guys, ABA term too. We fit in with this (laughs) term also. Mm -hmm. Okay. My last takeaway question is Casey's probably not going to get this because she's not into this crime stuff, but what is your favorite or by favorite, I mean, most fascinating serial killer that you have Learned about, followed, um, worked with, I don't know, anything along those lines. Who, which one are you like, oh, my God, this story just fascinates me?
2: This is gonna, probably going to be a surprise answer. And I, let me caveat this by saying that it probably changes based on the research that I'm doing. Um, but there is um, a mother-daughter team, uh, Rachel and Diane Stoudy. And they systematically um, together poisoned the dad with antifreeze, and then he died. And then a few months later, several months, about six months later, um, poisoned and killed the son in the family. And then about nine, I'm getting some of these dates, but it's pretty close. Nine months later, um, poisoned the, another daughter. And they were basically systematically bumping off their whole family so the two of them could be together. And they, they had plans to murder the, I think, 12 or 13-year-old sister next. Um, And, you know, we talk about, again, you know, Ted Bundy, Richard Ramirez, everything. But to think of this family, this church-going mom, she played the organ in the church. And it was just and just if you watch the like the interrogation tapes that are on YouTube, it's truly, it's just almost mind boggling to just, and talk about like a lack of empathy um, and compassion and hearing them talk about the reasons they gave for killing off the son was like 26 years old. He was mildly autistic and they killed him because he was kind of a pest which is kind of annoying. And then, you know, um, Rachel, the daughter it was a long story of how she, how they got caught, you know, because she was, she was nosy and she had these student debts that were coming up and they don't want to pay them. It was just like, I just could not get my head around murdering your, your children and, right. and just having no, emotion involved. It didn't seem like, so I've been, I've researched that case a lot recently and was on a show talking about that case in some respects that was as chilling of any case as I've ever heard.
1: Wow. They talk about it as if they're talking about what they eat for breakfast. Yes. Like, Oh yeah, I had to do that because the garbage man didn't come on time. So I had to drop it off at the neighbors or something
2: (laughs) like, you know, at, at one point, um, They took the last daughter who didn't die, but is severely disabled and always will be um, to the emergency room at the last minute, thinking that she was definitely going to die. And at one point, um, the interrogator or the the investigative uh, police officer said, why did you take Rachel to the hospital? And they go, because houses are just so nasty when somebody dies in them.
1: Oh, my God. Wow. Wait, what are these people's... it's Mom. Diane
2: yeah Diane and Rachel I'm sorry Sarah is the, is the one who they took to the hospital so it's Diane and Rachel and it's S T A U D T E Stouty S T A U T D T E Oh my god I'm gonna but if you yeah if you go to YouTube and look and just listen to their um you know, listen to their tapes It's kind of, and, and, um, Diane actually gave Diana's the mom actually did. I think it was, a, it was either 2020 20 or 48 hours um, interview recently or Dateline. It's one of those big shows. You can find it. And she literally implies it has completely changed the story. It almost implies that somebody was also poisoning her. It's just this complete like reinvention of what happened. So for some reason, that case really is is so interesting to me because it's just so, it's so chilling.
1: Wow. Okay. I'm definitely going to watch these videos after this podcast. I have my work cut out for me. (laughs) All right, guys. Well, if you have not had enough in hearing all these interesting things, Dr. Joni has to say, I recommend that you go to her website, which we'll also put in the show notes. It is Doctor Joni Johnston, with a T, J O. Oh, I guess I tell I guess I should tell you how to spell Joni too. J D R J O N I J O H N S T O N dot com. And on her website, you are going to find uh, links to her YouTube channel, which is called Unmasking a Murderer, which is super interesting. As well as links to her blog she has written for Psychology Today called The Human Equation. Uh, You could learn all about these different uh, famous murders and different concepts related. And also, again, I recommend getting her book. Go to Amazon, type in Joni Johnston, Serial Killers, 101 Questions True Crime Fans Ask. I think any of my crime people in here,
2: this must be on your shelf.
1: So go check it out. And Joni, thank you so, so much for coming today.
2: It was so much fun. Thanks for having me. Thank, thank you, your Joni. It. You're this, welcome.
1: This is like the, I've made it in life. I've peaked. Now I no longer, <laughs> I can quit the podcast unless you guys go leave reviews, you know, having <laughs> the contingency there, but thank you. Thank you. Thank you. You guys know where to find us. You could find us on our website, behaviorbitches.com, Instagram, Behavior Bitches Podcast, Facebook, Behavior Bitches Podcast, and go leave us a review in the Apple store. Please don't make me sound any more desperate than I'm already sounding, but I'm desperate. I really need these reviews to keep going. That's all we have for you today. And as always, love ya. Mean it.